Madeline from Midwife. David Nance. Seth Graham. Kiaville. Mike from Uniform. Lee Noble. Braden J. Today, I had the pleasure of talking to Tyler Holmes. Tyler Holmes is an Oakland-based artist who I talked to about their early musical influences and finding community where people genuinely have their back. This is an incredibly difficult time for artists, and we talk a bit about how corona has impacted uh, Tyler's work. If you're able to, please consciously support the music of artists you love by purchasing it from them or the labels that support them. We also have a Patreon, so if you feel like giving five bucks a month to get exclusive mixes and additional episodes, that's something that you can do, but seriously, go support your artist friends. So I am talking to Tyler Holmes, uh, who is in what looks like a beautiful day in uh, Oakland, California. And we um, were chatting. We were put in touch by uh, Michael. How do you pronounce Michael's last name? Michael Dadana? Mike Dadana. Mike Dadana from Ratskin Records. Um, and so I'm really excited to talk to Tyler about what sort of musical influences and moments in your life um, created this amalgam of sounds that I hear when I when I listen to your work. Um, so I guess we can start, you were telling me a little bit before we started the podcast, you grew up in Marin County? Yeah, I grew up in Marin County. And, and that has a, you said it's like the richest like county in the in the states? I think that's what it is. Yeah. Okay. What was what was it like growing up in the richest county in the United States? Um, well, I don't know uh, how much you know about me, but I am not the richest person in the United States. 
So it was definitely interesting for me. I grew up in a single parent home um, in an what is called an unincorporated part of a town called Novato, which is the last town before Sonoma County. So really people think Marin County, they think San Francisco and they think like glamour. And Marin County is not without glamour and Novato isn't without glamour. Like there's a, there's tennis courts, there's uh, golf courses. There's also like people or own horses. There's a lot of like cows. It's a little, there's a, a whole side of it that's very rural. There's a part called Old Town Novato that hasn't changed since the 1800s. It closes at like 5 p.m. Um, so I grew up in a pretty um, backward thinking place. Lots of, uh, it's very white, very wealthy. And as a poor brown kid, there's, uh, it's very obvious. Those things are very obvious. So you grew up in, so tell me a little bit about like where you grew up. Cause I'm a, I imagine like these like big estates, but you're saying there was some kind of like disparity between the, the estates and maybe where you grew up. Tell me a little bit about that. So the part that I grew up in is called Ignacio, which is, um, you know, uh, a Spanish word. <laughs> and is in, uh, it's called an unincorporated part of, of Novato. Maybe at this point it is, but at that point it was not. Um, there's another area, Hamilton, that was a military air base. Um, and they used to take over different parts of the town, but those are definitely more low-income areas. Obviously, the military base and the, uh, like, where I lived was, like, mostly brown families, um, lots of single-parent homes, etc. Um, we lived in an apartment complex. It was glorious, beautiful, like, of the places I've lived in my life, one of the more uh, pretty places. My backyard was, like, sprawling hillside, and I could walk for miles and hike, and it's gorgeous. Um, but we, it's funny because like in Marin, that's like the poor side of town is living in an area that's lush like that. It's just, you know, we lived in an apartment complex. It wasn't like upkept in the same, you know, amazing way. Um, there, there, as you get by the golf courses, there's like estates and bigger houses. There isn't like mansions. It, I wasn't like seeing mansions too much. Definitely in uh, Northern Nevada and San Marin is what they call it. Like where people have horses, the houses are a bit bigger. And I knew some friends who had parents that worked in San Francisco and stuff and were techies and nurses and their houses were huge, but it's still not like mansions. Um, in Greater Marin, like in, uh, what is it? Like in Ross and Fairfax and towns like that, there were some, uh, I had some friends that had, had mansions. Uh, the Terra Linda, there were some, some bigger sprawling homes. Um, but yeah, it's, a wide demographic so like did the school that you go to did that did that represent kind of the disparity um in marion county like so you had the kids who lived in those estates and then you know other kids who like you like lived in apartments was, was, yeah. was there that disparity that existed uh yeah it was very mixed there i don't think there there is a private school there's marine catholic and there was like definitely the kids that went to marine catholic and then sometimes like some of them would like came to our high school um so there was there was mixed thing back and forth i don't think it was like socioeconomically it wasn't obvious until we were in middle school mm -hmm. because as little kids um in that period of time there was of course some things that were like obviously like inaccessible to different groups like you know some kids had new video games some kids had new shoes 
but as elementary school kids those i think at that point in time it wasn't that obvious to me at least um when it was becoming like a preteen and a teen then it was more obvious that it was like oh those kids have a lot of shit and mm -hmm. um, those kids don't have to worry or think about x y and z um that was pretty clear I think for me, I grew up in a pretty wealthy suburb of Denver, um, but that also, you know, had that disparity. For me, it was when you went to sort of going to high school and you and you saw the parking lot. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you'd have some kids who had like you know their parents like Beamers and Benzes and stuff, and then you know people who rode kids who rode the bus, you know. Yeah. So there was a girl who her parents bought her a brand new red Hummer for I think her fourth birthday or something ridiculous she crashed it and they got her another one hell yeah love love kids who uh who drove hummers in in high school absolutely yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> like, like that's word. yeah yeah that is yeah that's that's a whole separate kind of energy that like i don't even know like what that would translate to now you know like do they even make hummers like god forbid like right. any any 16 year old get behind the wheel of one of those um, I was, uh, I went to high school outside of Denver, um, in this town called Littleton, which I think a lot of people have heard of. Um, but there was the, these two twins that went to Columbine high school, like, which was like the next high school over. And oh, wow. they would like, t like terrorize like our, uh, like our school, like they were or, or like, anytime there was a party, like you would see like that Hummer start rolling up. You're like, oh, oh shit, like we got, like these kids have like baseball bats and shit. Like they were like, just like insane, insane. So yeah, uh, I always associate like teenagers with Hummers of like, like uh, impending, like, uh, like fights in high school. So like funny games. Do you ever see that movie? Love, love that movie. Yeah. That's the vibe I get from those kids. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, oh my God, Michael Pitt like encapsulates like that, like so well. Yeah. Great action. Um, did you see the, uh, the Michael Hinek, um, uh, movie that that was, oh wait, no, no, the remake. Yeah. So the funny games was a remake of his own movie, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. It's Dutch or what is, where is it from? Uh, he, I think he's Austrian. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. He's Austrian. I went through a weird Michael Hinek phase that was pretty, uh, pretty bleak time in my life <laughs> 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 where I'd watch a ton of his films. Um, so growing up, um, did you did you have like a lot of music going on in the house what were some early memories that you associate with like listening to music or realizing that music was this thing that existed um it's interesting because you gave me some of these questions as a prompt and i was like as i had thought through the things it sort of put a, a puzzle piece together for me which made what you're talking about like why i make the music that i make really very very clear it was interesting um so early on I remember probably the earliest memories I have of music were my father playing music in our car. Um, and they mostly were unpleasant situations because he was very um, uh, crazy, angry, and temperamental. And um, I remember Michelle A was one thing I really loved. She was, a, uh, she was Dr. Dre's wife at the time. Okay. And she had a very high-pitched voice. And um, she had this song called Nasty that was like, people think I'm nice, people think I'm nasty, but I'm really nasty. Um, <laughs> like she had this other song, 100% Woman, and I used to sing that and they would all look at me crazy. Cause I'd be like, I'm 100% woman. Hey. And they were like, oh yeah, you are. <laughs> um, 
so I was into that. My my father would play Zapp and Roger, um, which I think was a huge influence in my music because it um, it's like the the forefathers of the like electronic vocal and like the hybrid human robot voice. Is it kind of like electro funk kind of stuff? Yeah, it's like yeah. R and B like electronic vocals. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so they have this song, "I Want to Be Your Man." Um, and their whole album was good, but I remember my father really liked Computer Love, which is like... Oh, yeah, I know that song. Yeah. yeah. Computer Love. Yep. Uh, and he would play it over and over again. And I remember once, like, on the freeway requesting, like, it was like, put on I Want to Be Your Man. And he, like, I was, like, literally four years old. And he pulled over the car on the freeway to, like, yell at me in my car seat to tell me never to, like, talk about the music at all. Um, Why didn't he want you talking about, like, was it that song or, like, the music in general he, he was controlling and he didn't want me to have an opinion or ask for anything or he wanted to be completely in charge so anything that was like can i do this was like no mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. um so i think that i th- was thinking about that story and i think that's one reason that like control for me with music with what i'm listening to with the sounds that i hear is very important because i think that was something that i really had to work a long time to regain and then i think once i was like able to control like what i was listening to i think i pushed that further with like being like there are sounds that i want to hear that don't exist and how do i create those um so i think that was a really important push interesting Um, yeah huh so go so so you're talking about like the need to kind of regain control over like the music that you listen to but also like the means in which you're producing it right so from the type of music but down to like the sounds that you're creating like that's important for you to kind of have control over that that definitely has been i definitely do like a um a thing where I want things to sometimes have like a very genuine sound, like record the actual thing. Um, but I think I was speaking more in a general sense of like, in almost like a meditative sense of just like the literal sounds and vibrations that your body need, wants to hear and needs to hear to like calm itself or to just do whatever that emotional regulation that you need to do. So I think one of the things one of the ways that i do that is by looking for songs and sounds that like um like you know you might watch a movie because it has certain sounds or you might like listen to a song because it has has certain words or specifically it has like emotional tones but then i think as i was making more music and listening to more music you still find that there's this like area where you're like i don't hear that like i want to hear that so that for me, I don't think I started making songs. I started just like playing around with textures and sounds. There was just like something I wanted to hear. I wanted to experiment with like, what would that sound like if I did this to it? So I think that control over like just what I'm hearing literally became very important to me. And where did that start out with? Like, what was your primary instrument that you started making sounds with? So I think the first, like as a kid, I would remember singing, uh, Madonna take a bow and Whitney Houston will always love you like on a loop. Um, but I really was out of touch with music for a long time. When I started making music and like recording sounds was in high school because for a long period I made, 
I would make these fake albums where I would like sometimes even like take a CD case and disassemble it and like make a booklet and like make the lyrics, make like a whole concept album, but not make any music. Um, Then in high school, I started like, I got a computer and then I was, had the ability to record small amounts of sound. And pretty quickly I turned that into making like very weird experimental sound collage albums and I would give them to my friends and my teachers and stuff. Did you have any reference points with other artists and other musicians that made sort of like more collage or sound-based art (laughs) at that time? I did, I think, one of the main ways I heard that like found sounds and stuff done so explicitly was like through Radiohead, they did a lot of like uh, contorting the human voice again and a lot of just like very random sounds like that come from life and like turning other sounds into things that sound more like daily life. Um, I remember one of my, the biggest inspirations for me, I think it was, I can't remember how old I was when it came out, but when Bjork released Vespertine, a lot of the sounds on that are um, found sounds or they're meant to imitate or mock sounds in real life. And it gives this really cool kinesthetic experience because she's like painting this portrait of kind of like life at night or like this kind of winter vibe, but it comes across through like, you know, replicating icicles, like the sound of like trudging through snow or sand. It's like very, very visceral things that your body just responds to. Um, so there are artists that did things like that that I really picked up on. Um, that really resonates with me right now. That one is a bold memory. Mm-hmm. So hearing, um, so there's a lot of artists that. Sorry? No, go on. Oh, so hearing Bjork and Radiohead were like two two big ones, like artists who use kind of the studio, right, as like the, uh, as an instrument kind of unto itself to manipulate sounds um, in, in, in a kind of new and novel ways. Um, yeah. Any other artists, and it sounds like that was like high school, where you were you like kind of exposed to artists like that? Uh, that was a little bit earlier. So I got, mm-hmm. so I think one of the first things I bought for myself was like Bjork's Homogenic. As like, maybe I was like 10 or 11. I bought that with like some Lil' Kim records. Um, so that was pretty early. So when Bjork came out with Vespertine, I was probably like maybe 12 or something. Um, and Radiohead, I think Kid A came out around that same time. Yeah. And I was best with both of those records. Um, so it was probably middle school when I started really like thinking about textures and sounds like that. And that was a little bit later when I got like a computer and was able to like record any sound at all. Mm-hmm. So you were buying Little Kim records and Bjork records, like in the same, like walking up to the counter with like both of those records. Yeah, I think I was, I think I was 10 or 11 and I had saved up money and they were like, oh, this is your money. What do you want to buy? And I got the Little Kim uh, Ladies Night Maxi single. And uh, I think I got Bjork Telegram the tape or I know it was post the tape. And they, it was funny because they were like, oh, this Lil' Kim is fine because it's the single. It won't have the bad words. And it definitely <laughs> did. It had, it had the album version. <laughs> it had all the really, really explicit versions. And I was like. <laughs> so in some ways, uh, do you feel that kind of like, well, I, I don't even want to call it like a, a duality because, you, you know, like that, that's saying that they're approaching their art in like two totally separate ways, which I don't hmm. necessarily think that they are, right? I mean, 
Bjork, you know, has definitely explored like, you know, sexuality and like some very mm -hmm. kind of like very novel ways. Um, but in terms of like this sort of like more like mass produced pop and kind of more kind of left field pop, do you feel mm -hmm. like those two things kind of coming together? So do you, do you feel like your music still kind of contains both elements of those? Uh, yeah, I think ideally that's kind of the, the Venn diagram that I want to straddle. Little Kim Bjork. Um, maybe not Lil' Kim because I'm not a rapper. I definitely went through a period where I was a rapper. I released a, a rap album with my brother called Black Jews. Okay. Um, but uh, that that's passed for me. I'm not like on a song I might do a rap, but I, I wouldn't consider myself a rapper. So maybe not Lil' Kim. But um, but kind of that that's still like... Um, that that like kind of more straightforward like pop element that like you maybe responded to in purchasing that little kim record yeah i think now maybe for me maybe a little more like one of my biggest influences always has been uh, amy mann so more like a, a singer songwriter oh, maybe from more yeah yeah from like uh what what band was she in the 80s she was um, in the tuesdays yeah 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 but but she did that like Oh man, that like save me song. I'm trying to remember yeah, for like from a Magnolia. This yeah, I love I love that movie. She had this. Oh, that's one of my favorite movies. Um, and that so there's another artist, uh, John Bryan, who did the the score and the soundtrack for a lot of P.T. Anderson's movies. Mm -hmm. Was a huge influence for me. He does a lot of weird shit with sounds and a lot of. Uh, taking different arrangements and warping sounds and transposing and taking songs and doing them in different ways, which is another huge obsession in my music catalog. So that was a huge inspiration. Those two working together was a great crossover. What do you like about Amy Mann's music that you see that as such a profound influence for you? Um, Amy Mann is very interesting because she's just a great songwriter. Um, there, I feel like there's a lot, I've, I'm, very into female and femme singer songwriters it's like any of most of those characters i'm gonna like i love cheryl crow you know tracy chapman i love all of those characters i'm gonna love um amy mann was big for me because i think she's kind of depressed in a way that a lot of the other characters mm. aren't or a lot of the singers aren't sort of she has this like sardonic sort of over it nasal just matter of fact, like this is what's happening kind of tone. Um, and Amy Mann is really effective at expressing bittersweet. I think in most of her music expresses that life can be tragic, but it's also beautiful. Um, and that is definitely the main thing that I'm trying to, uh, to get across with my music. So I think being able to tell different stories and to tell songs with different arrangements in ways that might not necessarily be flashy or experimental, um, but get across like a variety of different tones and moods like that is really important to me. And then I like to mix that with stuff that's a little more, um, you know, electronic or I think experimental is the thing for me, just like there's, there's always some turn to it that makes it more interesting for me. Mm -hmm. And so when you were able to create those sounds in high school with a computer, what were you, what were you doing and what were you making it on? So I had uh, windows 
sound recorder. I think it's 1995 or something. And it is a small, it's like a box like that big. And it lets you with the computer mic record 60 seconds at a time. Um, it's actually pretty, cause I had done it in more recent times and the sound is pretty good. It has like a high hiss, but the amount of sound that you can actually get on the track is pretty good. So I would use that to make very small samples um, because it's, you can record up to a second, but it edits down to like a quarter of a second or smaller. So I would like record a quarter of a second of like me tapping like a Nautilus shell. And then I would sample that into the beat so that that was the click or the snare or something. Um, and I would do that with like, you know, a multitude of sounds and the keyboards and all of the instruments at that point. Um, so like that element still crosses over today. Like, um, I made a, a new song, which maybe I'll send you after this. It's going to probably be on the new record. And, uh, so for that song I sampled, there's these wasp and hornet sounds from Donkey Kong. So I took those sounds, I, and I warped them so they'd be harmonic with the song. Um, and they're, you know, shaped differently. And that's like in the intro and the outro to the song. Got it. So that was, uh, that was you in in kind of high school just exploring all of the all of the different ways that you could kind of capture sound right and then and then kind of place them on like a musical grid in ways that somewhat mimic other sounds right so like the sound of a nautilus kind of mimicking the sound of a snare um interesting um when you um so that, that sounds like a really kind of good entry point into sort of like the music that you're creating now. When did you start making music kind of in a more like earnest way or, or as, as a way to kind of like, I don't know, uh, and, and it sounds like it was pretty earnest back then, but when did you really kind of start exploring like creating music as um, a means to kind of make sense of the world around you? Um, I think for a long time with, uh, music and sound I was just sort of like I can like can I do this can I make something that sounds like anything um, and then eventually I started to like I had a band uh, called Oblio it was really just me making songs and then I would perform with my friend Karen um, but I start I like I made a couple songs that sounded more like songs and I released them on MySpace and a couple of them like got some hits, like they had 300 hits or something. So then I was like, I was like, oh, like people have actually listened to this and thought it was music. So I was like, well, then maybe like I can do this in a different way. Um, and then shortly after I was like 21 or something, Karen moved to Mexico. And then I felt weird being on stage by myself and having a name that wasn't mine. So then I started being Tyler Holmes. And uh, I guess that's when I started really doing it. It took me a long time to hone my craft. I was a disaster of a person. And uh, yeah, I think I've had so many different artistic obsessions and I'm, the lucky thing for me is I'm relentlessly tormented and therefore relentlessly creative. So I always have something to create and something to imagine, but I went through a long period where I was like putting it in too many different places, I would say, and just wasn't composed enough as a person to get across really what I was trying to. And I feel like as time has gone, I have kept a lot of those elements that I was interested in, but I've just gotten better at like getting them across to other people. <laughs> Got it. What were, um, what were some of those maybe like, what were some of those false starts maybe that, that, um, that, that you look back and you're like, Oh, I, you know, I, maybe 
I wasn't quite there yet to kind of follow this rabbit hole. Do, do you have any that come to mind of like, man, I, I really put too much energy here when I should have like been focusing it over here? Hmm. Uh, there was like, there, I think there was a period where I was sort of getting my, what I wanted together. Like I had sort of a live setup that I liked. Um, I think there was a period where I thought that I wanted to use a laptop on stage with a whole bunch of other things. I was like, there was this Grimes period for me where I wanted to like just have so much happening. Um, and I think that was like, I just think I was confused about how to make what I wanted to happen with the budget that I had. Um, and I think that that point in time, I maybe should have focused a little more on like, like being consistent and playing the guitar, just like learning my, my, uh, my music structure better. Um, but you know, it all shaped what I've done now and who I am as an artist now. So it's all important. For sure. Um, yeah. Awesome. So when did you move to like the Bay area or like wh where you kind of are now? Have you moved around a bunch or has this kind of been your home base for, for a while? I've been in Oakland now for like eight years, nine years, a while. Okay. And um, how is the, like the music scene there or, you know, what you're exposed to out there influenced um, what you do? Um, so Oakland has a great music scene. Um, it, and over the course of the year, San Francisco and Oakland, I've, that's the main reason that I've been coming to like party here is that the music was cool. People are, um, there's a lot of weird people that are trying to showcase weird, which is, that's me. And that's always been me. Um, so it's like, I met um, my sisters here, like Sancha and Lane Hain. Um, and we did our daddy's plastic thing. Um, they've always been like huge inspirations for me. And um, they're relentless in their, their craft, which is great. And uh, working with Mikey and Ratskin, I've just like, there was this community of artists that I've known for years and we've been working together for years. We played shows together for years. Um, and it was cool to just like see them all sort of like be housed in the same way and just be supported in the same way. Cause it's like Maya Songbird, like Wizard Apprentice. Like I've been playing shows with them the entire time I've been playing shows basically. Um, and like, uh, I don't know, that kind of like those black creatives that are in Oakland and San Francisco that like really creates the sound. There's so many, cool brown and latino musicians and asian musicians that are doing like experimental and electronic music which is like uh i feel like when i was moving here that was one of the things that i was looking for that's kind of i met sancha playing a show we played a show together and it was with a bunch of like artists that were all making electronic music but we're all brown and we were like this is what we like don't see in the world we're like not represented in these communities um but like this is what we're interested in this is like this like the world is all technology we, this is part of our experience it's part of our narrative we have to like be involved in it in some way and i think uh you know we started actually a group that was like for brown musicians we only had like maybe three or four meetings but that like seeing the niche that doesn't exist and like filling it um it's a real big part of oakland and oakland is just like it's looked at as like being a little hood, a little grungy, a little punk, and it like is all of those things. And that's what makes the music terrific. That's like 
that's what you want. All of those things are what you want in your music. You want it to be hyphy. You want it to be punk. Um, and it's like, it's legit. I like it. I feel it. <laughs> I'm drawing a really interesting parallel between something that you said earlier where you would listen to songs and you would you you would listen to them and 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 hear in your mind maybe like sounds that you wish were there right so you'd like oh man i want to like i want to kind of create this sound that is i'm not hearing in this mu in this music as you get older and you're able to kind of produce that kind of music you're able to perform that in front of people in a community that you've done that with this you know with this group that you've like you know, I'm not seeing, you know, like brown and Latino and Asian people being supported in an experimental music community. Um, I'm not hearing, you know, my experience kind of like, you know, broadcast and, 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 and you know, played in, in, the, in the way that a lot of other narratives are. So I'm going to do that myself. I'm going to kind of fill in the, that gap with, you know, with what I'm experiencing. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. I think that's really that's really interesting, and it sounds like Oakland kind of provides you the opportunity to you know to do that. Um, it sounds like with the kind of the like-minded folks out there who are genuinely kind of supportive of each other's art, you you kind of yeah. have have a bit of a bigger launching pad to to be able to do that. That's yeah, awesome. I think there might have been like a couple of years ago there might have been like a more of a competitive spirit but mm. i think in in the past like since i've been doing it basically once i i think once it shifted from everything being in san francisco to oakland being like really really like um the diy scene and the explosion of just like doing whatever we want and having shows and uh making you know what we want to happen happen i think since that's started happening it's been this upswing of like a really positive community where instead of like people having this thing where it's like oh i can't share my art because it's not like fully uh fully realized or i don't know who i am yet it's like you have space there's like plenty of shows where you can showcase that i've played shows where i don't know what i'm fucking doing um and or it's like i'm trying something new and it's not right you know and then it's still in this same community those same artists that i'm listing we're still playing those shows and then it's like we see each other at the next show and it's like oh you're doing this now great i'm supporting this and then it's like it's just really supportive so that you can figure out the thing that makes sense for you um while doing it in a real way while not like you know thinking i only have to make music while i'm at home because it's not likable or it's not like a plus it's like you have a community that supports you figuring it out which is cool do you feel like when you make those experiments and, and make those risks that you that you get like honest feedback or um or because i you know i think support can kind of cut both ways right if you're doing yeah. something and people are just like hey six set hey six set <laughs> you know like you, yeah, yeah, like yeah maybe you know maybe what you're doing isn't like great if you would have gotten some more constructive feedback. Do you feel like from these communities that you're able to kind of get constructive feedback when you take a risk or when you kind of put something out there that isn't fully formed? Uh, yeah, I think that that definitely is in, embedded in the community. And like, I try to have that, I mean, just be a part of my community. And I think, um, I've been really lucky constructive criticism and aren't afraid to be like, oh, I liked that one, the other one, not so much, you know? <laughs> right. 
my mother always comes to my shows. She will be like, I hated that. You know, she, she doesn't care. Yeah. Um, which she usually loves it. But if something is not good, she's going to tell me. And I think uh, like with anything, you know, you have, there's people that want to just be like relentlessly supportive. And then, you know, there's the people that you go to and you're like, I want this bitch's opinion, you know, right, cause right, she's going right. to, you know, and I so think there's like, a I certain... definitely have. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. Just like having those people, like the ones you know to go to for that advice. You know? Yeah, I think that I think there's a certain um, level of trust that comes with that, yeah. right? That that doesn't come from like uh, th- I think that exists when things like are a little bit like less hierarchical and a little bit more like yeah, like less competitive, right? Um, yeah, because you, you see a or win. just somebody who's not afraid to hurt your feelings. Sure, sure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think that that is uh, that's really crucial, and and your ability to, to take that criticism comes in different parts of your life, right? I I, I feel like sometimes your like your your yeah, ability to like see that as like not a personal attack comes after you know yeah. like a lot of reflection and kind of like um, a lot of uh, stability within yourself. So yeah openness too yeah so i've got i've got a question and i i didn't make this i i don't know why i didn't make this connection beforehand so if it's a something you don't want to talk about i you know we don't have to talk about it all but um you know ghost ship has been just a pivotal thing in diy community across the country um i've seen uh ramifications of it in in my community here in cincinnati um, yeah. in a, a, a community that I'm really, really close to in Denver um, because of that. Um, and, and like I said, I didn't prep you for this. And, and so if you don't want to answer, please, we can move on to the next subject. But in, in what ways have, has Ghost Ship changed the, the overall, just the, the DIY landscape in Oakland? I mean, I would hope that it's changed it for the better and that they they at large they are taking it more seriously like people's safety okay um, and and who is who is who is who is they I, I would say people who own venues number mm. one okay because people are given the uh opportunity to use the space people are going to utilize it to make money people are greedy um mm-hmm. so if you own a space, uh, I think it's definitely made people just in the completely legal, um, selfish way. It's made people be like, I can't do that. The police will shut me down. Or right. I can't do that because I don't like, it's made people be a little more serious about stuff like that, which I've seen be both bad and good. I've had a show that I was supposed to play that was like a festival that was hella serious. And we got there and they were like, we don't have the ordinance to have this many people here today because they didn't come give us the form. Mm. And I was like, mm, that's ridiculous. Um, I've had, I had a show at a very a place pretty close to my house that I canceled at the last minute because they were not promoting the show at all um, weeks leading up to it. And I started asking them, they weren't responding to me. And then eventually they were like, Oh, I, you know, I haven't been able to log into Instagram, but uh, they were like, we, you have to like take all the stuff down saying the address of the show and we're not like legally allowed to throw the show anymore. So you can, if you want to or not. And I was like, good luck with that. Yeah. So um, weird spot to be in. Yeah. Hmm. So 
yeah, there's been a bunch of different things, but before Ghost Ship, I definitely had some worse scenarios. Like I played a show in San Francisco a long time ago that was actually a really cute show, but it was, we played in a lot of degenerate spaces. Like it seemed like it was going to decompose around you and halfway through the show, excuse me, the police came and tried, wanted to come in and count heads. And we had to stay for two hours. No, I think it was at the end of the show. So we had to stay for two hours after the show. So we're like in this person's like shabby, shabby house till 2 a.m. trying to keep the cops from coming inside. Um, so I'm happy if we're moving away from that and artists have a place to showcase their art. I've seen a lot of that because I have been privileged in the past years to play some cuter shows. I've played also some not cute shows. So I'm hoping, my, my hope is that that has left a, a positive impression on what artists need to survive, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think in, in some ways it really kind of um, laid bare this, like, this idea that people are, are, DIY exists not because it's like some fun pastime, you know, that artists want to do. It's, it's out of complete necessity because of the way that, you know, our society prioritizes culture, right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, I, I always think that, you know, DIY is, is best done with competent, forward-thinking people who are doing it intentionally instead of, like, because it's an option. <laughs> and yeah. so, um, yeah, I, I, I really hope that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that that definitely bodes well for other communities as well that, you know, first and foremost, um, beyond, you know, our ability to showcase our art and, and to have, you know, culture is people's safety, right? Um, yeah, I think there's a really interesting connection because right now during this coronavirus time, um, I think it's in general, it's really easy for the world to view art as trivial and to be like, well, it's just art. We don't need that. Um, even though, you know, actors and actresses are some of the highest paid people and la la la, that's a very small amount of people mm -hmm. um, and a very small amount of artists. Um, but I think in general, art gets this sort of, especially in the United States, gets this sort of like, that's cute that you're doing that. In San Francisco, you know, drag queens aren't paid, people get tipped and shit. It's like, uh, I've played so many shows where you're, you know, they're like, oh, it's exposure or like, you're going to get paid <laughs> right. if we get paid. Like, such bullshit, you know? Um, so, yeah, it's, I don't know. I think one, I mean, so Friday, right, we're Sunday. Friday was the day where Bandcamp waived all of their, their fees. Yeah. And it was really, really inspiring to see people um, support one another um, during yes. this. But I still really kind of got the sense that it is, it's the same community that's supporting each other. And oh, exactly. It's and it and it's really difficult because artists are the ones that are most affected by this, and it affect like them losing their source of income. Also, they lose the ability to support their friends, right? And so, yeah. I I don't know what it what it will take um, to 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 kind of shift that in a way where art is is viewed as not a a luxury, but as a you know, as a craft, um, as a, as a well, labor. As a necessity, because yep. 
in like like was, like in this time where everybody's stuck inside now everybody wants art everybody's yeah. trying to <laughs> constantly be digesting art because they can't do the things that they normally right. like to do right. so in this time art seems more valuable and i've seen like like there was recently this twitch drag show where they had all these drag queens do some were live some were pre-recorded they did you know a full drag show because they can't be in a club and this is literally how these bitches pay their bills and all their shows were canceled so things like that pop up in italy people are like all out on their patios singing to each other so it's like art is obviously a necess like a necessity it's an important part of life because it's therapeutic that's like an essential part of my art is my life is has been trauma so i make art so that i don't scream constantly so i think this time is an interesting you can see an interesting shift in people's at least um attention around art because it's definitely like oh yeah please give me art like i woke up this morning and we were making breakfast and our friend was uh was like oh my gig got canceled so i'm gonna play some cello for you like live on live stream so like while i was making breakfast i listened to my friend play live cello so it's like the art is explosive it's everywhere people want to digest it the audience is there and uh it's just this, now we're seeing this redistribution of everything because it's like, you know, I work at a school during the day and it's like, that is important because people need somebody to watch their kids. So now I'm gonna like do a modification where we teach classes via Zoom like this. Um, but it's interesting to see everybody's priority shift. And in capitalism, the funny thing is it's like, like the government's now trying to like send us these checks. And to me, it's so confusing because I'm like, the whole scheme is ridiculous. Like, like, send us checks, just have us not pay rent, deliver us some food, like, skip 10 steps, you yeah. know? No, uh, I, it's very confusing, but I, I can yeah. see how people without power seemingly are the people that get it. You know, like you were saying with the Bandcamp sale, I got a, I did a release just for that day and I saw a great outpouring, got a lot of support, lots of people bought the record. Um, but then it's like, I'm looking through the list and you know, it's, it's fans, it's people that I know that are lots of people that I know that are artists. Um, and it's like, that's who's supporting art. I, I bought stuff on Bandcamp cause I wanted to support my friends. You know, it's like, totally it's different values. It's very interesting. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm wondering if we're really seeing the end of like the vinyl boom, right? So where, where people who maybe weren't like totally totally into music we're buying physical records because it's kind of like a novelty but that yeah. didn't that hasn't like lasted right people aren't like um now that i think with the ubiquity of spotify it's just like oh that's how i'm gonna listen to music now <laughs> like it's like um like people's like record players and, and like records like you know dust getting gathering dust on the shelf that, that it hasn't like that hasn't that mass of like consumers hasn't stayed with that format um yeah and so now we're, we're really kind of hustling to try to figure out like how to get your music into those those ears and i always yeah. i i always kind of wonder if that's somewhat futile or if or if it you know talking about like where we're spending our energy if yeah. just just reaching out and making these one-to-one -one connections um, plugging into com communities that already support that art um, yeah. is what is going to be able to sustain things. Um, you know, I, like, I don't know if you know this, but I, I run a record label and that has always been really interesting to me to see where those sales come from. 
you know, yeah. I'm always just like, I'm always like flabbergasted when I like somebody buys something. I'm like, who are you? <laughs> like, I don't like, huh, yeah. you, you didn't sleep in my house, you know, six months ago when you were on tour. I don't know you like, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's also like, yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool. But um, definitely the way that I, I, I feel like these uh, music is distributed in, in a, in a meaningful way where people make connections with it. I think happens through these like one to one, you know, like connections. And so if, if, if it's going to be, um, if it's going to be artists supporting other artists or creatives supporting other creatives, then we better figure our shit out to make that sustainable. Right. Or otherwise yeah. like that base is just going to go away and I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I think it's starting to rain. Oh, uh, <laughs> isn't that interesting? <laughs> Yeah, kind of, what, yeah. What a variety of weathers. Yeah. Um, um, so you said you work at like a, a school during the day. Um, have you seen um, kind of talking about coronavirus and this, you know, major shifts in the way that we just we live our lives. How have you seen this impact, um, you know, your, like your kind of day to day or, or maybe the community that you're a part of uh, their, their ability to, you know, make art on a larger scale. Um, well, sorry, I'm moving inside. Oh, you're good. The, uh, a couple of ways that I mentioned, like I have played a lot of shows like at the stud in San Francisco. So I know a lot of the community that uh, is involved with that venue, everybody that's doing that shit, all the drag Queens, they can't be in clubs. You can't do shows. The bands can't do live shows. You were just talking about vinyl. I'm supposed to, uh, my vinyl's supposed to be getting pressed right now. Um, but there's a couple things. Uh, everybody who's like, you know, supposed to be mixing it is traveling. It's mm -hmm. bad temperature. Um, the plant that processed all the vinyl lacquer melted to the ground. Yeah. Um, and as you're saying, nobody buys vinyl. So there's all of those different issues. Um, so everything is like, there's a little slow to that kind of stuff. And then like, because I'm releasing that record in the summer, I need to do a tour. Right. But right now I'm home for three weeks or more. And I'm like, this is a perfect time for me to plan a tour. Absolutely can't plan a tour. Like yep. it's the one thing I definitely can't do is plan right. a tour with a lot of people, which is what yeah. you want. So, yeah. um, but when you have the time to do that, which it's kind of paradoxical and it's like i just finished a record so it's like i can start working on a new record um but you know how that works um and so it's i, I mean for me i'm like always ready to be creative and i've been staying indoors my whole life so i'm excited i've made a bunch i made a new song i'm ready to make some new songs i reached out to some people for some collaborations um but the the part about making money and you know like watching that live stream drag show acting with a crowd and being alive in a room full of other human beings is a big part of the experience there is the there's the artifact with music which is my made my favorite component because i love to just like be in headphones be in another world yeah, but then the live component as a performer I, that's where I feel like myself. In all the other parts of my life, I feel like I'm on mute. When I'm on stage, I can scream and be a cartoon and jump up and down and tear my fucking hair out, and that's what I want to do. So it's hard to like have less of an avenue to do that and to see yeah. the community at large struggle with, like, where do I put this energy? 
you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's really interesting as somebody who's like pretty naturally extroverted. Um, I'm, I'm like, Oh, sick. This is a great opportunity to kind of like work on some projects and not kind of feel that like, uh, that FOMO or, you know, like that, like, um, you know, having my energy going in a ton of different directions, but yeah, I wonder how that, how long that's going to last where that's like, it's fun. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and especially like, yeah, the ability to, like you said, music as is therapeutic for you, you know, it, it has, you know, the ability to kind of, um, release those, those feelings that, um, sometimes don't have words, um, to, to, to say, uh, yeah, um, that that's, yeah, it's going to be challenging to, to find avenues. To, well, to find there, there are, really are no avenues except for potentially live streaming, but still that doesn't have that, you know, human component that, um, that, that has, I think it, I think I love live streams because it does, it has that artifact that you're talking about. It has mm-hmm. like, um, like you are, you're hearing music in a completely new way in a completely like new environment. Um, so it has that kind of that novel aspect that I really like, but yeah, you're not, you're not, you're not responding to the, the performer, the performer's not responding to the, the room itself. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I don't know, obviously what, <laughs> what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> I, um, and I, I, I I kind of naturally look for sort of um, silver linings in all of this because, and, and, I, and honestly, it's coming from a place of privilege. Like I'm, um, my, my jobs don't rely on, you know, my ability to be out. You know, I, I can do both of my jobs um, from home. Cool. Um, but, and, and so I'm looking for, like, I'm looking at this and like, oh, this, you know, I bet people are, you know, have a little bit more time on their hands. You know, I bet there's going to be some interesting collaborations that come out of this. Um, but also the, just the human toll that this is having, I think we have yet to sort of quantify um, yeah, in we- terms of how this is going to impact, uh, you know, DIY communities and musician communities for, across, like, like small and, and like, this is the interesting thing that it's, it's affecting people like on completely different scales right yeah 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 like i mean big time experimental musicians had their tours canceled which would have paid their salary you know for that entire year right what yeah what is going to happen there when like you know finesse can't tour right or something like that or um so yeah very yeah very unsettling well yeah i think we've kind of come to the present day (laughs) (laughs) I think we've kind of traced that, traced that line. Um, So what are you, what are you currently working on? Um, You said you have a record coming out soon. Could you tell me a little bit about that? So, uh, so let's see, I just released on Bandcamp on Friday. Uh, It's a new song and then it's some, it's like a hodgepodge of songs that have been available, but aren't available like to buy or even to listen to right now, I think online. So those are, just like some songs that were speaking to me, some love songs. Um, That is called Her Is. Uh, That's available right now. Um, It has the most recent song I composed for um, men.com for a scene that is men.com versus Tom of Finland um, with Matthew Camp. Um, 
so that was fun. And now I'm, I've been working on a record with a friend um, named Matt Holt, who performs as Den Lee. And we've had this like kind of R&B hip hop-ish record that we've been trying to finish for like five years. So I'll probably finish that. Um, I, I reached out for some collaborations. The record that uh, we're talking about is finished. It's like uh, 11 or 12 songs. And, you know, we're going to finish. We're going to figure out when it's <laughs> when it's coming now. But, um, yeah, I've been talking to, like, the art got a little delayed because of this issue. Mm -hmm. um, it's, yeah, it's an interesting time. I have been making this record for maybe, like, almost four years now. So I'm definitely ready to share her. I'm very excited. I think it's I love it. It's my, probably my favorite one yet. But uh, yeah, I'm like, I'm a little bit in limbo with that, but I'm excited because I'm like, I'm making vinyl, I'm taking a new step. I'm probably gonna do a more serious tour, figure out uh, what the arrangement is gonna be this time because with every, usually with every show, I have a different arrangement. So with this tour, with every tour, it's a different thing. Last time it was me and Lou who played the flute and the keyboards. So I don't know what we're gonna do this time. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the concepts or, or some of the things that you're exploring on this record? Is it too so, soon? Um, I think it's too soon. Okay. I think Mikey's don't talk about it too much. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll respect that. <laughs> well, I'm excited. I want to really bad. Ah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to send you a song. I'll okay. Send you one song. Cool. Well, maybe we could, um, this has been nice. Maybe we could uh, revisit. Mm -hmm.